Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Day two and a half, I guess, from the Social Coast Forum in Charleston, South Carolina. First day being training. That's right. Second full day of the conference yesterday was fantastic. It Uh, really, really has been a wonderful Social Coast Forum 2020. Yes. Well worth it. Well worth it. And we're continuing coverage today. Several new shows coming your way. And we're going to kick off uh, the Wednesday coverage with a special guest from the great state of New Jersey. It's the Garden State. The Garden State. People don't know it's beautiful. But I know our guest does. This is Gene Herb, the executive director of Environmental Analysis and Communications Group at the Rutgers School of Planning and Public Policy. That's a cool sounding title. Welcome to the show, Jean. Thank you very much. It is a very long title. <laughs> it's got a lot in it. Environmental analysis, communications, and planning. Uh, well, welcome to the podcast. And uh, tell us a little bit about what brought you to the conference. This is my first Social Coast conference. And I'm here because I'm working on a NOAA project of special merit that is looking at how can we better integrate um, underrepresented populations in coastal resilience planning. And that's a project that has drawn a lot of attention nationally through NOAA's work. And the thought was that it'd be great to come here and talk to some of the other uh, coastal resilience planners to talk to them about some of the things that we're learning. Very cool. And, you know, I'm just going to quickly introduce uh, also Bill O'Byrne is sitting down with us. Bill has been joining us on several pods here, part of our coverage. And Bill, this is actually a question for you. What is a project of special merit? So the, uh, well, thanks for having me again today. Of course. And uh, the projects of special merit are uh, monies that come from the Coastal Zone Management Act and are provided to states in a competitive form um, to uh, enhance their coastal management programs. Uh, you know, there's some monies that just go to coastal programs to basically maintain and and uh, help them or assist them maintain and implementing the normal program. And these other monies are really uh, meant to enhance uh, different aspects of the program to be able to deal with new issues or things like that. So a program of special merit, a new project. Tell us about, uh, you came to do the presentation. Had it this morning, I understand. 8.30. Right at the crack of dawn. How was the crowd? I was in a very large room, and it was a very active crowd, lots of questions, and um, I stayed right on time. I was... um, really happy with some of the questions. It was a challenging conversation. Uh, The topics that we're talking about are not easy topics. These are hard conversations. We're talking about finding ways to engage uh, populations and communities that do not have power and do not have access to decision-making because of uh, historic social injustices, because of historic underinvestment in communities, because of uh, racism and um, other uh, historic social um, inequities, and finding ways to... um, Uh, be able to bring these communities into the coastal resilience planning process. And and that is not easy. And we talked about how coastal resilience planners can become change agents and ask a lot of questions to create new ways of of planning for future climate conditions. Um, But when you ask a lot of questions, you can... 
um, ruffle feathers and you can challenge the status quo. And we talked about how that can sometimes um, make people uncomfortable. And uh, so that led to some really interesting conversations. Very interesting. Again, I think kind of part of the theme of this conference is the human dimension of coastal management. You're right at the forefront of that discussion. Tell us a little bit about that project. So you're trying to reach these communities. How do you approach something like that? The project involves uh, several components. Uh, We've spent some time doing focus groups and interviewing leaders throughout the state of New Jersey who work with populations that are especially affected by changing climate conditions. Um, So in New Jersey, that means that we've been uh, talking to urban communities, we've been talking to older uh, New Jerseyans and organizations that work with them, we've been talking to organizations that represent people that have compromised health um, or that have disabilities, um, and we also talk to um, populations that have lower income, and we talk about what are some of the um, existing challenges that those populations and those communities face that are exacerbated by changing climate conditions, such as sea level rise or changing coastal storms. Um, And then we talk about how do we start to address the underlying uh, challenges that those populations face as part of resilience planning. So this is not about do we build sea sea walls or, or do we have more efficient evacuation during coastal storms. This is about how do we uh, fundamentally address uh, the types of challenges that um, these populations face now, today, so that they can be better equipped um, when when there are climate events in the future. Mm. Very interesting. I, I, I'm curious to know, and maybe the answer is it's just obvious, it's on the nose, but what is your method for identifying these communities? Uh, There's been a lot of research in this area, and uh, I am certainly not the leading researcher on this. Um, In fact, the Centers for Disease Control um, has um, put together an index that is currently online, and we have used that index as part of Rutgers University's own um, online web mapping tools. So if you live in New Jersey, you can go to New Jersey Flood Mapper and look at the Centers for Disease Control Social Vulnerability Index. And that will give you an index of um, where there are people of color, where there are people who are low income, um, where there are people who don't have cars, or where there are people who are um, uh, older. But what we also found by um, talking to populations is that there are other types of vulnerabilities, social vulnerabilities, and that includes people who um, are not necessarily living in poverty, but people who are the working poor. Um, Also, municipalities that are in distress, people who are homeless, veterans. And so part of the work that we've been doing is to also identify additional sets of data that communities can use to um, specifically identify um, those populations so that they can um, work um, uh, collaboratively with um, those populations and their leaders to, um, to better address their needs. Wow. Um, you said it's not about seawalls and it's not about barriers and it's not about evacuation planning. It's about what you can do now to engage these communities in a constructive dialogue. It's how, how do you do that, and why is it important that you do that? 
in a lot of ways, it's about uh, power. It's about um, health. Um, much of what we have come to appreciate is that the issues regarding social vulnerability is that the populations that are especially vulnerable to changing climate conditions are the populations that have historically not had access to decisions. And so if I am a population, if I'm a member of a population that is likely to be most affected by changing climate conditions, um, and I don't have a seat at the table, and I don't have the ability to make decisions on what my future looks like, then that is just simply um, an injustice and an unfairness. And so the, the challenge of the project that we're working on is to look at how do we change the status quo and how do we change um, processes so that we can um, so turn the tables a little bit so that there's the ability to um, uh, bring those voices to the table. And uh, also this, the second part of the project that we're working on is um, to look at uh, how to incorporate into the resilience planning process the ability to track and measure impacts of resilience decisions on populations that are most vulnerable so that we know that if a community is making a decision to you know do x y and z because it thinks it will make the community more resilient let's see if we can measure if those decisions are going to really benefit the communities that are most vulnerable um, rather than uh, perhaps benefit the communities that um, can take care of themselves now because they um, have access to resources and conditions um, regardless of, um, you know, of, um, of resources and finances. So uh, you use that term, uh, a seat at the table, mm -hmm. which is in the title of your talk, uh, which I'll read now. A seat at the table integrating the needs and challenges of underrepresented and socially vulnerable populations into coastal hazards and resilience planning. And I guess I'm wondering what the table is in this case. Obviously, we're talking about resilience planning, um, but you're also talking about even like pre-resilience planning, um, just representation and, you know, social support. Um, so is this is this a is this a democracy table what what are what is the table that, that you're talking yeah, who, about there who's who's uh, who's who's at the table with you what, what are you trying yeah tell us about that. you're getting to the heart of this issue and i think that's why our session this morning at 8 30 was um so challenging um i almost named one of my slides this is hard stuff because what we talked about this morning is that if you're a resilience planner that's looking to um, consider impacts, equity impacts, or the impacts of your work on underrepresented populations. And if you're a resilience planner that's looking to um, incorporate um, voices into your process of populations that have historically not had power, it means that you are um, changing um, historic processes and you are asking questions that um, some people might view as um, questions from a change agent. Some people might view as exciting. Some people might view as um, futuristic and create opportunities for bright new futures for your community. 
but other people might view as troublesome, as irritating. Um, and so I think part of what we're trying to look at here is how can we um, build collaborative processes uh, between resilience planners and others in the community that share those values. For example, um, partners that want to advance um, opportunities for health and health equity, knowing that those same populations that, um, that don't have a seat at the table are the same populations that have limited access to the kinds of resources and conditions that allow them to live um, a happy and healthy life. If you don't have access to a car or if you don't have access to health insurance, you're going to be the same population that um, struggles with the ability to be able to um, be cared for in a disaster event as well as be able to um, manage your own health. So the same populations um, are affected by health issues that are affected by climate change issues. So there's a, there's a natural collaboration between um, people who care about public health and people who care about resilience. So part of what we talked about today in the session was looking for those cross-sector collaborations and building partnerships there as a way to overcome some of the resistance um, that might um, surface um, as part of being change agents. So that sounds like an, a very specific extension of our keynote speaker's message yesterday, uh, Sorelli Sutaria Patel uh, from the Public Health Administration. What is it? Public? American Public Amer Health Association. Thank and you, in fact, actually, after her talk, I had to run up to my room and adjust my presentation. Um, <laughs> really? Indeed, because um, she did cover a couple of my um, my 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 comments and um, slides. And I do like to often um, include um, a quote from the American Public Health Present, um, Association in my presentation, which is that um, uh, climate change and um, health inequities are inextricably linked. Hmm. Really great. Bill. <clears throat> so Sorelli was talking yesterday about, uh, I guess, different states developing uh, risk and vulnerability assessments for uh, health assessments. So is that one of the, the tables that you're talking about making sure people get up to? Or, and is it, are the tables those types of existing planning processes that you just need to make sure are kind of addressing uh, those uh, uh, left out uh, populations? Yeah, and in fact, um, I think that what's really exciting about some of the work that the American Public Health Association is doing is that, um, is that the public health community um, views equity as a cornerstone of um, addressing climate change impacts, whether we're talking about, um, such as at this conference, about impacts in the coastal zone, you know, such as impacts from coastal storms, impacts from rising sea levels, um, or if we're talking about increased cardiovascular and asthma um, because of changes in um, ozone from rising temperatures, um, and seeing that, um, that the public health community can lead in these areas. Um, I think what's also exciting um, coming from the American Public Health Association is, is recognizing that the conversation about equity is definitely a conversation about 
um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and mm-hmm. that the concepts of um, equity and, and diversity and inclusion are, are not the same. It's one thing to um, include, it's one thing to have um, new voices sitting at the table. Um, it's another thing to make sure that the processes that we use are fully inclusive, inclusive so that those participants at the table have the capacity that they need, um, have the resources that they need um, to be um, fully um, involved and feel fully welcome to be able to be uh, fully engaged in the process. I really appreciate um, this perspective. And obviously, this is a theme, you know, you're uh, you're carrying kind of this uh, a theme that we have seen here at the Social Coast Forum that I find very interesting. But one of the things that that you've got me thinking about is that in the title of your uh, talk, you don't have the word climate change in it. Um, you do have the term coastal hazards um, and resilience. And it occurs to me that um, perhaps a uh, uh, perhaps one of the things that we might concern ourselves with is that as the crucible heats up here with climate change in coastal communities, we will perpetuate inequities down the way in our haste to try to, you know, as you say, build walls or, or you know, respond to it. And Peter, what I'm reminded of is our discussion of the economic transformation of the shoreline and how it affects communities. I mean, we're talking like old, like you could go back 100 years and just look at the transformation of fishing communities going from working class communities where, you know, everyone knew each other and the kids all went to the school to now these are vacation Airbnb communities. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot the facilities are no longer there. The libraries can't be supported or right. there's no interest in them. And, you know, the, the infrastructure that the community would rely on. Now, this I don't I don't know if this but it's a different type of resilience. You know, yeah, I think uh, if I might, I mean, this this socio psychosocial resiliency discussion that's happening here at the conference is uh, very much in the realm. Of, you're obviously working in that realm. The tr- so is it the case that th- the perception is that there's going to be transformative events involved in the shoreline, but in climate generally, and this is a conscientious effort to ensure that all of the affected people are engaged in open in in the process um, and I, I'm trying to bring this down a little bit to in the physical world um, when we're looking at their at the involvement of vulnerable communities or underrepresented communities or disempowered communities in the process there's got to be a specific concern that you want them there so that X, they're not overlooked, these communities are not overlooked, or that projects are considered in a particular way. Is that too specific? Is Does it have that implication uh, I, as I a think planner? You're, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. And to be a little personal, I'm, I'm a Jersey girl through and through. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized I actually grew up in the coastal area um, because I didn't grow up in what you think of as the Jersey Shore. I grew up in West New York, New Jersey, which is in Hudson County. And you would think of it as kind of like where the Lincoln Tunnel comes out. 
um, and which is actually um, an estuary on the Hudson River, and uh, which is in the same town that my father grew up in, and he's 93 and still lives there. Um, and he was a Sea Scout um, before the Second World War, and um, and that's in the coastal zone. And I grew up um, as one of four daughters getting stuffed into a wood-paneled station wagon going to spend day trips down at Sandy Hook because we were a working-class family and we couldn't, you know, spend a week at the Jersey Shore. Now, every year, my extended family um, spends two weeks um, on Long Beach Island in a rickety old Victorian house because that's what we can afford. But in the time that, you know, we've been doing that for the past 25 years, I've seen transformative change um, in, in my two weeks at the Jersey Shore. And, and it's, it's exactly what you're saying. Um, the, 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 we're seeing the loss of the bungalows. We're seeing the loss of the mom and pop shops. Um, and, uh, and we're seeing, um, you know, the small two, you know, the small little houses coming down being replaced by giant um, homes that are air conditioned and people not sitting on their porches and, you know, and, and, uh, and walking to the, to the beach. So, so there's a, a tremendous concern about what the future holds um, for, for our coastal areas. And, and there's tremendous concerns that are different in terms of the back bays and, and the Delaware Bay. So I think the issues here are that there's not, in my state, there's not one Jersey coast, Right. There's not one Jersey coast at all. Um, my experience um, up in up in Hudson County, up in the up in the Hudson Estuary is radically different than than experiences of some of my friends in the Delaware Bay. The needs are different. We can't cookie cutter these communities. However, what is same is that for those populations that um, have the least access to power and decision making and resources, that um, without the ability of them having a voice, um, that um, it is likely, and history has taught us, um, that, um, that they will not be able to control their future. And so with the support of NOAA and with the support of, of, of uh, the state of New Jersey, which is a partner in this project, the State Department of Environmental Protection is a partner on this project, we're looking to see how can resilience planning become an opportunity to be more democratic and to look for opportunities to, um, to do two things. One is to make sure that those populations that are most vulnerable and that have historically had the least access to power have the opportunity to have a voice in decisions. But the second thing is that as much as we may look for opportunities to include those most vulnerable populations in processes, it doesn't, it doesn't let all of us off the hook to also think about how our decisions affect the most vulnerable populations. So, you know, I live a fairly privileged lifestyle. It doesn't mean that just because I might consult or create processes where uh, vulnerable populations have a, have a seat at the table, that I'm off the hook for thinking about um, how our decisions might affect uh, the, most, the populations most affected by climate change. So the other part of the project is to, is to look at how can the resilience planning process um, cook in um, decision points that, th that allow resilience planners to think about what are the challenges in this community that are the biggest challenges to, 
to uh, the most vulnerable populations. And also to have resilience planners think about for the decisions I'm considering or about to make or might make, how do they affect or could affect positively or negatively those most vulnerable populations? And, and can I, um, can I, and how can I factor equity into those um, decisions so that I am um, better addressing the needs of those most vulnerable populations? So it was that the monitoring part of the project that you had talked about earlier about monitoring the impacts on of of those decisions on the uh, those sets of populations. Right. That that's part of it. the the other The other aspect of the project, which um, quite frankly we're just getting into now, so um, I'm thinking about this part of the project a lot, but I don't have any secret sauce yet is um, uh, our, our last part of the project is to offer some um, recommendations or policy options, um, options for, for policy to the state um, in terms of um, uh, how, how resilience planning policy could better um, reflect some of this thinking. And so uh, we will, uh, over the course of the next couple months, be uh, taking some time to work with a project working group that we've established <coughs> during the course of the project to offer some thoughts um, specific to to the state on its <coughs> resilience planning program um, in terms of potential policy change. So, Gene, at the end of the day, you guys will be presenting recommendations back to the coastal program or whomever on these various uh, approaches, how you might uh, approach that. And then, uh, and you may have answered the question at the very end, uh, my question was, how uh, is this jersey centric or is this transferable uh, to other locales it's um the project itself is jersey centric except because it is a project of special merit um our friends at noaa are um lending us um um emotional and uh, uh, uh sort of technical support in terms of um helping us with reviewing materials and um, uh, giving us some um, uh, support in terms of resources and in terms of, you know, just kind of giving us insights. Uh, and, and in that way, it's been tremendous help. Um, I do think they also will help to take some of the things that we've learned because, I mean, the project is limited in terms of its capacity, right? I mean, we're able to do a certain number of things. And I think that NOAA views this as a project that they hope to build on um, in terms of, um, taking the 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 finite capacity of where this project ends and then building on it further into the future. So I can imagine that some of our audience is out there listening and saying, oh boy, if we, I'm, a, I'm playing devil's advocate now, but if we shackle our resilience effort to kind of the social reform part, um, it will get in the way of our ability to uh, respond to the physics of climate change and what you're what you and people that think like you are doing is uh, distracting us from solving the real problem how would you respond to that view I had the opportunity to work in state government for about 23 years and um, and during that time um, I attended many public meetings um, where there were many unhappy 
community residents um, because we perhaps didn't take the time to listen and consider all of the factors that were challenging within that community that um, could have been considered um, as part of the decision making that we were doing. And so I think what I would say is that we are right now at a, a, a wonderful, promising, opportunistic time um, here in the United States in terms of climate change resilience planning in that we have um, resilience planners such as those that are here at the Social Coast um, that are open and eager to work with people like public health folks and social workers um, and engineers um, and that there's the opportunity to kind of come together and, and look for opportunities and that sometimes the slower you go, the faster you get there. Um, and that um, sometimes when we rush to um, push things along, thinking that we just need to get that solution in place, we find that we end up taking two steps backwards. It makes sense. Uh, it seems like the foundation, this is something the engineers talk about all the time when you're building anything in the coast to resist waves and things is what's the structural foundation um, and it sounds like what you're you're proposing here and what uh, you're seeking to do is to build the broadest possible foundation in the community to re be resilient in the projects. And you have to lay an all-inclusive foundation. And it just makes sense. How Starting can, with health, it seems Yeah, like. how can mm -hmm. you leave out low-lying populations that are traditionally vulnerable and overlooked? They are going to be the people impacted. So the engagement seems essential if it's going to work whatever it is that you're trying to do in resiliency planning uh, is that am i kind of following that you sound like a convert <laughs> you're very good at so you're a good communicator uh but i wanted to ask this so can you tell our audience a little bit about how these vulnerable communities and i assume that you've done outreach and engagement as part of this project so far how was it the message being received, who's coming forward from the community, faith leaders, civic leaders, how is that? Tell us about the conversation. I think some of the conversations that we've had um, are, um, well, first of all, I think uh, we are, I'm tremendously grateful for the partners that we have had um, from many different communities the ones you've mentioned, from community-based organizations like Family Success Centers um, and um, groups that just, you know, work in community, um, from COADS, um, from, um, you know, environmental justice organizations and, and others um, that, you know, do the day-to-day -day community organizing work. Um, and I would say that um, when we've talked with community leaders and when we've talked with um, residents um, there is 
<laughs> we always start these conversations because I'm an ac academic institution where I have to give an informed consent, and the informed consent includes me explaining that um, the conversation is not for attribution, and that's so that there'll be you know an open give and take, and no one should be worried that I won't um, you know report their name and th something like that. And then it's just the silliest thing that I do that because then everyone's got a million things to say and they just jump right into it. So because they they, they, they yeah, don't need the cover. they don't they don't need that. They're like they've got a million things to say and then we always expect that the conversation is going to be an hour and it goes forever so so they're very eager to um to talk to us they've got fantastic ideas they don't need coaching um and um it it's been a tremendous um and uh inspirational set of conversations um and i as often is the case on these projects it's um hard to um it's hard to think about um, this as just a project, as like, oh, there's the project, we have to write a final report, and now we're done. Thinking through how to now take this and use it to really inform um, um, transformative change in um, an important work of resilience planners is something that I think my colleagues and I um, really feel strongly about, um, and informing our own work um, at um, at Rutgers, we we um, Governor Murphy recently signed um, a law creating a Rutgers Climate Change Resource Center at the university, which is intended to be a service center where we'll work with other academic institutions um, and with partners throughout the university to um, provide support to decision makers and communities. Um, and I've learned a tremendous amount from from this work um, in terms of how we will be approaching our our own work as well. Mm. So for those who are interested in learning more about your program, the project, if you're a planner in another state and you want to take a look at the methodology, how can folks learn more about the work that you're doing? Um, let's see. Um, you can, um, well, my email is jherb, as in boy, at ejb.ruckers.edu. Um, is probably your best way to reach me. Um, and you can also go to... Um, the um, Resilient NJ, um, Resilient New Jersey, Resilient NJ, um, because um, I really do need to give a lot of, uh, a big shout out to the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, um, because it was really um, them, the, the New Jersey DEP, the Coastal New Jersey uh, program, the CZM program at New Jersey, that applied to NOAA and, and to NOAA for the, for the PSM project, and, and that was um, open to um, uh, you know, working with Rutgers on, on the project. So I appreciate um, all of you giving um, Rutgers some attention here, but, um, I mean, the, our partners definitely deserve that shout-out as, as well. So thank you. Fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Jean Herb, the Executive Director of Environmental Analysis and Communications Group at the Rutgers School of Planning and Public Policy, and one of the uh, – professionals on the front lines of adaptation and climate change with a conscientious effort to be inclusive and to, to draw on the vulnerable communities into the process, a really important initiative. And great to see this early in the discussion on resiliency, that this is in a critical part of the, of the debate already. Thank you so much.